the Augsburg Confession. The Confession of Faith, which was submitted to His Imperial Majesty Charles V at the Diet of Augsburg in the year 1530 by certain princes and cities. I will speak of thy testimonies before kings and will not be put to shame. Psalm 119.46 Preface to the Emperor Charles V Most invincible Emperor, Caesar Augustus, most clement Lord, inasmuch as your Imperial Majesty has summoned a Diet of the Empire here at Augsburg to deliberate concerning measures against the Turk, that most atrocious, hereditary, and ancient enemy of the Christian name and religion, in what way, namely, effectually to withstand his furor and assaults by strong and lasting military provision, and then also concerning dissensions in the matter of our holy religion and Christian faith, that in this matter of religion the opinions and judgments of the parties might be heard in each other's presence, and considered and weighed among ourselves in mutual charity, leniency, and kindness, in order that, after the removal and correction of such things as have been treated and understood in a different manner in the writings on either side, these matters may be settled and brought back to one simple truth and Christian concord, that for the future one pure and true religion may be embraced and maintained by us, that as we are all under one Christ and do battle under Him, so we may be able also to live in unity and concord in the one Christian Church. And inasmuch as we, the undersigned elector and princes, with others joined with us, have been called to the aforesaid diet, the same as the other electors, princes, and estates, in obedient compliance with the imperial mandate, we have promptly come to Augsburg and, what we do not mean to say as boasting, we were among the first to be here. Accordingly, since even here at Augsburg, at the very beginning of the Diet, your Imperial Majesty caused to be proposed to the electors, princes, and other estates of the, the Empire, amongst other things, that the several estates of the Empire, on the strength of the Imperial Edict, should set forth and submit their opinions and judgments in the German and the Latin language. And since, on the ensuing Wednesday, answer was given to your Imperial Majesty, after due deliberation, that we would submit the articles of our confession for our side on next Wednesday. Therefore, in obedience to your Imperial Majesty's wishes, we offer in this matter of religion the confession of our preachers and of ourselves, showing what manner of doctrine from the Holy Scriptures and the pure Word of God has been up to this time set forth in our lands, dukedoms, dominions, and cities, and taught in our churches. And if the other electors, princes, and estates of the empire will, according to the said imperial proposition, present similar writings, to wit in Latin and German, giving their opinions in this matter of relig religion, we, with the princes and friends aforesaid, here before your imperial majesty, our most clement lord, are prepared to confer amicably concerning all possible ways and means, in order that we may come together as far as this may be honorably done, and the matter between us on both sides being peacefully discussed without offensive strife, the dissension, by God's help, may be done away, 
and brought back to one true accordant religion. For as we are all under one Christ and do battle under him, we ought to confess the one Christ, after the tenor of your imperial majesty's edict, and everything ought to be conducted according to the truth of God. And this it is what, with most fervent prayers, we entreat of God. However, as regards the rest of the electors, princes, and estates, who constitute the other part, if no progress should be made, nor some result be attained by this treatment of the cause of religion, after the manner in which your imperial majesty has wisely held that it should be dealt with and treated, namely, by such mutual presentation of writings and calm conferring together among ourselves, we at least leave you with the clear testimony that we here in no wise are holding back from anything that could bring about Christian concord, such as could be effected with God and a good conscience, as also your imperial majesty and next the other electors and estates of the empire, and all who are moved by sincere love and zeal for religion, and who will give an impartial hearing to this matter, will graciously deign to take notice and to understand this from this confession of ours and of our associates. Your Imperial Majesty also, not only once but often, graciously signified to the Elector's Princes and Estates of the Empire, and at the Diet of Spires held A.D. 1526, according to the form of your Imperial Instruction and Commission given and prescribed, caused it to be stated and publicly proclaimed, that Your Majesty, in dealing with this matter of religion, for certain reasons which were alleged in Your Majesty's name, was not willing to decide and could not determine anything, but that your majesty would diligently use your majesty's office with the Roman pontiff for the convening of a general council. The same matter was thus publicly set forth at greater length a year ago, at the last diet which met at Spires. There your imperial majesty, through his highness Ferdinand, king of Bohemia and Hungary, our friend and clement lord, as well as through the orator, and imperial commissioners caused this, among other things, to be submitted. That your imperial majesty had taken notice of and pondered the resolution of your majesty's representative in the empire, and of the president and imperial counselors, and the legates from other estates convened at Ratisbon, concerning the calling of a council, and that your imperial majesty also judged it to be expedient to convene a council, and that your imperial majesty did not doubt the Roman pontiff could be induced to hold a general council, because the matters to be adjusted between your imperial majesty and the Roman pontiff were nearing agreement and Christian reconciliation. Therefore, your imperial majesty himself signified that he would endeavor to secure the said chief pontiff's consent for convening, together with your imperial majesty, such general council to be published as soon as possible by letters that were to be sent out. If the outcome, therefore, should be such that the differences between us and the other parties in the matter of religion should not be amicably and in charity settled, then here before your imperial majesty we make the offer in all obedience, in addition to what we have already done, that we will all appear and defend our cause in such a general free Christian council for the convening of which there has always been accordant action and agreement of votes in all the imperial diets held during your majesty's reign, on the part of the electors, princes, and other estates of the empire. 
to the assembly of this general council, and at the same time to your imperial majesty, we have, even before this, in due manner and form of law, addressed ourselves and made appeal in this matter by far the greatest and gravest. To this appeal, both to your imperial majesty and to a council, we still adhere. Neither do we intend, nor would it be possible for us, to relinquish it by this or any other document, unless the matter between us and the other side, according to the tenor of the latest imperial citation, should be amicably and charitably settled, allayed, and brought to Christian concord. And regarding this, we even here solemnly and publicly testify. Chief Articles of Faith Article 1 of God Our churches, with common consent, do teach that the decree of the Council of Nicaea concerning the unity of the divine essence and concerning the three persons is true and to be believed without any doubting. That is to say, there is one divine essence which is called and which is God, eternal, without body, without parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things visible and invisible. And yet there are three persons of the same essence and power who also are co-eternal, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the term person they use as the fathers have used it, to signify not a part or quality in another, but that which subsists of itself. They condemn all heresies which have sprung up against this article, as the Manichaeans, who assume two principles, one good and the other evil. Also the Valentinians, Arians, Eunomians, Mohammedans, and all such. They condemn also the Samosatines, old and new, who, contending that there is but one person, sophistically and impiously argue that the Word and the Holy Ghost are not distinct persons, but that word signifies a spoken word, and spirit signifies motion created in things. Article 2 of Original Sin Also, they teach that since the fall of Adam, all men begotten in the natural way are born with sin, that is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with concupiscence, and that this disease or vice of origin, is truly sin, even now condemning and bringing eternal death upon those not born again through baptism and the Holy Ghost. They condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, and who, to obscure the glory of Christ's merit and benefits, argue that man can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. Article 3 of the Son of God Also they teach that the Word, that is the Son of God, did assume the human nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, so that there are two natures, the divine and the human, inseparably, inseparably enjoined in one person, one Christ, true God and true man, who was born of the Virgin Mary, truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried, that he might reconcile the Father unto us, and be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. 
He also descended into hell and truly rose again the third day. Afterward, he ascended into heaven that he might sit on the right hand of the Father and forever reign and have dominion over all creatures and sanctify them that believe in him by sending the Holy Ghost into their hearts to rule, comfort, and quicken them and to defend them against the devil and the power of sin. The same Christ shall openly come again to judge the quick and the dead, etc., according to the Apostles' Creed. Article 4 of Justification Also they teach that men cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith. When they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, who, by his death, has made satisfaction for our sins. This faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight. Romans 3 and 4. Article 5 of the Ministry. That we may obtain this faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. For through the word and sacraments as through instruments, the Holy Ghost is given, who works faith, where and when it pleases God in them that hear the gospel, to wit, that God, not for our own merits, but for Christ's sake, justifies those who believe that they are received into grace for Christ's sake. They condemn the Anabaptists and others who think that the Holy Ghost comes to men without the external word, through their own preparations and works. Article 6 of New Obedience Also they teach that this faith is bound to bring forth good fruits, and that it is necessary to do good works commanded by God because of God's will, but that we should not rely on those works to merit justification before God. For remission of sins and justification is apprehended by faith, as also the voice of Christ attests. When ye shall have done all these things, say, We are unprofitable servants. Luke 17.10 The same is also taught by the fathers. For Ambrose says, It is ordained of God that he who believes in Christ is saved, freely receiving remission of sins, without works, by faith alone. Article 7 of the Church Also they teach that one holy church is to continue forever. The church is the congregation of saints, in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. And to the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Nor is it necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be everywhere alike. As St. Paul says, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, etc. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Article 8. What the Church Is Although the church properly is the congregation of saints and the true believers, nevertheless, since in this life many hypocrites and evil persons are mingled therewith, it is lawful to use sacraments administered by evil men 
according to the saying of Christ. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, etc., Matthew 23, 2. Both the sacraments and word are effectual by reason of the institution and commandment of Christ, notwithstanding they be administered by evil men. They condemn the Donatists and such like, who denied it to be lawful to use the ministry of evil men in the church, and who thought the ministry of evil men to be unprofitable and of none effect. Article 9 of Baptism Of baptism they teach that it is necessary to salvation, and that through baptism is offered the grace of God, and that children are to be baptized who, being offered to God through baptism, are received into God's grace. They condemn the Anabaptists, who reject the baptism of children, and say that children are saved without baptism. Article 10 of the Lord's Supper Of the Supper of the Lord, they teach that the body and blood of Christ are truly present and are distributed to those who eat the Supper of the Lord, and they reject those that teach otherwise. Article 11 of Confession Of confession, they teach that private absolution ought to be retained in the churches, although in confession an enumeration of all sins is not necessary, for it is impossible, according to the psalm, who can understand his errors, Psalm 19.12. Article 12 of Repentance of repentance, they teach that for those who have fallen after baptism, there is remission of sins whenever they are converted, and that the church ought to impart absolution to those thus returning to repentance. Now repentance consists properly of these two parts. One is contrition, that is, terrors smiting the conscience through the knowledge of sin. The other is faith, which is born of the gospel or of absolution, and believes that, for Christ's sake, sins are forgiven, comforts the conscience, and delivers it from terrors. Then good works are bound to follow, which are the fruits of repentance. They condemn the Anabaptists, who deny that those once justified can lose the Holy Ghost. Also, those who contend that some may attain to such perfection in this life that they cannot sin. The Novatians also are condemned, who would not absolve such as had fallen after baptism, though they returned to repentance. They also are rejected who do not teach that remission of sins comes through faith, but command us to merit grace through satisfactions of our own. Article 13. Of the Use of the Sacraments Of the use of the sacraments they teach, that the sacraments were ordained, not only to be marks of profession among men, but rather to be signs and testimonies of the will of God toward us, instituted to awaken and confirm faith in those who use them. Wherefore, we must so use the sacraments that faith be added to believe the promises which are offered and set forth through the sacraments. They therefore condemn those who teach that the sacraments justify by the outward act, and who do not teach that, in the use of the sacraments, faith which believes that sins are forgiven is required.
Article 14 of Ecclesiastical Order Of Ecclesiastical Order they teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments unless he be regularly called. Article 15 Of Ecclesiastical Usages Of usages in the church, they teach that those ought to be observed which may be observed without sin, and which are profitable unto tranquility and good order in the church, as particular holy days, festivals, and the like. Nevertheless, concerning such things, men are admonished that consciences are not to be burdened, as though such observance was necessary to salvation. They are admonished also that human traditions instituted to propitiate God, to merit grace, and to make satisfaction for our sins are opposed to the gospel and the doctrine of faith. Wherefore, vows and traditions concerning meats and days, etc., instituted to merit grace and to make satisfaction for our sins, are useless and contrary to the gospel. Article 16 of Civil Affairs Of civil affairs they teach that lawful civil ordinances are good works of God, and that it is right for Christians to bear a civil office, to sit as judges, to judge matters by the imperial and other existing laws, to award just punishments, to engage in just wars, to serve as soldiers, to make legal contracts, to hold property, to make oath when required by the magistrates, to marry a wife, to be given in marriage. They condemn the Anabaptists who forbid these civil offices to Christians. They they condemn also those who do not place evangelical perfection in the fear of God and in faith, but in forsaking civil offices. For the gospel teaches an eternal righteousness of the heart. Meanwhile, it does not destroy the state or the family, but very much requires that they be preserved as ordinances of God, and that charity be practiced in such ordinances. Therefore, Christians are necessarily bound to obey their own magistrates and laws, save only when commanded to sin, for then they ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 Article 17 of Christ's Return to Judgment Also they teach that at the consummation of the world Christ will appear for judgment and will raise up all the dead. He will give to the godly and elect eternal life and everlasting joys, but ungodly men and the devils he will condemn to be tormented without end. They condemn the Anabaptists, who think that there will be an end to the punishments of condemned men and devils. They condemn also others who are now spreading certain Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall take possession of the kingdom of the world, the ungodly being everywhere suppressed. Article 18 of Free Will Of Free Will They teach that man's will has some liberty to choose civil righteousness and to work things subject to reason. But it has no power without the Holy Ghost to work the righteousness of God, that is, spiritual righteousness, since the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But this righteousness is wrought in the heart when the Holy Ghost is received through the Word. 
These things are said in as many words by Augustine in his Hipponosticon, Book 3. We grant that all men have a free will, free inasmuch as it has the judgment of reason, not that it is thereby capable, without God, either to begin or at least to complete aught in things pertaining to God, but only in works of this life, whether good or evil. Good, I call those works which spring from the good in nature, such as willing to labor in the field, to eat and drink, to have a friend, to clothe oneself, to build a house, to marry a wife, to raise cattle, to learn diverse useful arts, or whatsoever good pertains to this life. For all of these things are not without dependence on the providence of God. Yea, of him and through him they are and have their being. Evil, I call such works as willing to worship an idol, to commit murder, etc. They condemn the Pelagians and others, who teach that without the Holy Ghost, by the power of nature alone, we are able to love God above all things also to do the commandments of God as touching the substance of the act. For although nature is able in a manner to do the outward work, for it is able to keep the hands from theft and murder, yet it cannot produce the inward motions, such as the fear of God, trust in God, chastity, patience, etc. Article 19 of The Cause of Sin of the cause of sin, they teach that, although God does create and preserve nature, yet the cause of sin is the will of the wicked, that is, of the devil and ungodly men, which will, unaided of God, turns itself from God, as Christ says in John 8.44, When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. Article 20 of Good Works our teachers are falsely accused of forbidding good works. For their published writings on the Ten Commandments and others of like import bear witness that they have taught to good purpose concerning all estates and duties of life, as to what estates of life and what works in every calling be pleasing to God. Concerning these things, preachers heretofore taught but little, and urged only childless and needless works, as particular holy days, particular feasts, brotherhoods, pilgrimages, services in honor of saints, the use of rosaries, monasticism, and such like. Since our adversaries have been admonished of these things, they are now unlearning them, and do not preach these unprofitable works as heretofore. Besides, they begin to mention faith, of which there was heretofore marvelous silence. They teach that we are justified not by works only, but they conjoin faith and works, and say that we are justified by faith and works. This doctrine is more tolerable than the former one, and can afford more consolation than their old doctrine. Forasmuch, therefore, as the doctrine concerning faith, which ought to be the chief one in the church, has lain so long unknown, as all must needs grant that there was the deepest silence in their sermons concerning the righteousness of faith, while only the doctrine of works was treated in the churches. Our teachers have instructed the churches concerning the faith as follows. First, that our works cannot reconcile God or merit forgiveness of sins, grace, and justification. 
but that we obtain this only by faith when we believe that we are received into favor for Christ's sake, who alone has been set forth the mediator and propitiation, 1 Timothy 2.5, in order that the Father may be reconciled through him. Whoever, therefore, trusts that by works he merits grace, despises the merit and grace of Christ, and seeks a way to God without Christ, by human strength, although Christ has said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14.6 This doctrine concerning faith is treated everywhere by Paul. Ephesians 2.8 By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, etc. And lest anyone should craftily say that a new interpretation of Paul has been devised by us, this entire matter is supported by the testimonies of the fathers. For Augustine, in his many volumes, defends grace and the righteousness of faith over against the merits of works. And Ambrose, in his De Vocatione Gentium, and elsewhere, teaches to like effect. For in his De Vocatione Gentium, he says as follows, Redemption by the blood of Christ would become of little value, neither Neither would the preeminence of man's works be superseded by the mercy of God. If justification, which is wrought through grace, were due to the merits going before, so as to be not the free gift of a donor, but the reward due to the laborer. But although this doctrine is despised by the inexperienced, nevertheless, God-fearing and anxious consciences find by experience that it brings the greatest consolation because consciences cannot be set at rest through any works, but only by faith, when they take the sure ground that for Christ's sake they have a reconciled God. As Paul teaches, Romans 5.1, Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. This whole doctrine is to be referred to that conflict of the terrified conscience, neither can it be understood apart from that conflict. Therefore, inexperienced and profane men judge ill concerning this matter, who dream that Christian righteousness is nothing but civil and philosophical righteousness. Heretofore, consciences were plagued with the doctrine of works. They did not hear the consolation from the gospel. Some persons were driven by conscience into the desert, into monasteries, hoping there to merit grace by a monastic life. Some also devised other works whereby to merit grace and make satisfaction for sins. Hence, there was very great need to treat of and renew this doctrine of faith in Christ, to the end that anxious consciences should not be without consolation, but that they might know that grace and forgiveness of sins and justification are apprehended by faith in Christ. Men are also admonished that here the term faith does not signify merely, merely the knowledge of the history, such as is in the ungodly and in the devil, but signifies a faith which believes not merely the history, but also the effect of the history, namely this article, the forgiveness of sins, to wit, that we have grace, righteousness, and forgiveness of sins through Christ. Now he knows that he has a Father gracious to him through Christ, truly knows God, he knows also that God cares for him and calls upon God in a word. He is not without God as the heathen. 
For devils and the ungodly are not able to believe this article, the forgiveness of sins. Hence, they hate God as an enemy, call not upon him, and expect no good from him. Augustine also admonishes his readers concerning the word faith, and teaches that the term faith is accepted in the scriptures not for knowledge, such as is in the ungodly, but for confidence which consoles and encourages the terrified mind. Furthermore, it is taught on our part that it is necessary to do good works, not that we should trust to merit grace by them, but because it is the will of God. It is only by faith that the forgiveness of sins is apprehended, and that for nothing. And because through faith the Holy Ghost is received, hearts are renewed and endowed with new affections, so as to be able to bring forth good works. For Ambrose says, Faith is the mother of a good will and right doing. For man's powers without the Holy Ghost are full of ungodly affections and are too weak to do works which are good in God's sight. Besides, they are in the power of the devil who impels men to diverse sins, to ungodly opinions, to open crimes. This we may see in the philosophers, who, although they endeavored to live an honest life, could not succeed, but were defiled with many open crimes. Such is the feebleness of men, when he is without faith and without the Holy Ghost, and governs himself only by human strength. Hence, it may be readily seen that this doctrine is not to be charged with prohibiting good works, but rather the more to be commended, because it shows how we are enabled to do good works. For without faith, human nature can in no wise do the works of the first or the second commandment. Without faith, it does not call upon God, nor expect anything from God, nor bear the cross, but seeks and trusts in man's help. And thus, when there is no faith and trust in God, all manner of lusts and human devices rule in the heart. Wherefore Christ said, John 15, 5, Without me ye can do nothing. And the church sings, Lacking thy divine favor, there is nothing found in man. Naught in him is harmless.